Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I spend a lot of time on um, preparing for cross-examination of experts. You know, preparation is the key to our success. Picking the right jury, I don't care how good of a lawyer you are, if you have a horrible jury, you're just not going to win no matter what happens. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Steve. You'll, you'll have to um, let me know. I am right next to a giant construction site, which is really interesting because I have a construction case right now. So I keep looking out to like see what they're doing. See but, if they're um, doing the safety things right? Yeah, but not podcast friendly. So. Okay. Let me know if you start to hear some jackhammering. I heard that yesterday when we were up there and I knew that uh, I was wondering if how much it was going to interfere, but, uh, but hopefully it'll be, it'll be fine. Yeah. Well, um, well, Yvonne, let's talk about our guest. Um, so I, uh, you know, I've said many times on this show, we, we have had some really impressive guests and, um, and, you know, who've accomplished a lot of things in life. And then, um, and then it makes me look at my own life and wonder what I've been doing this whole time. <laughs> Mark Avra is one of these guys. He's our guest today. Mark is uh, a partner at Avra and Smith in Gainesville, Florida. And you can look up Mark at avra.com. And, uh, and, and, and Yvonne, we, before I say hello to Mark, I'll just say, you know, that when I was looking at, um, you know, his background, uh, not he set aside the law stuff that he's done, which has been pretty impressive, but, uh, but Mark was a, um, a sheriff's deputy at Alachua County. I think I got that right in Florida. He was part of the SWAT team. He was, he was the supervisor of the street crimes unit. He's also a pilot and he, uh, on his, uh, uh, extra time sounds like he flies, uh, medical assistance flights. So, uh, I mean, we're not even talking about the stuff that he does as his regular job. This is, uh, this is all stuff he's done, uh, 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 you know, at other times. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you guys. Um, and, uh, you know, just looking at and, and I think I saw, Mark, that you uh, put yourself through both college and law school while you were a sheriff's deputy. Is that right? Yeah, I worked uh, midnight shifts at the sheriff's office uh, in the early 1980s, and uh, they were kind enough to let me use a, a department vehicle. We were on the Indianapolis plan, which meant you took your car home. So I'd get off around 7.30 in the morning. I'd be on campus at eight. Uh, University <laughs> police were kind enough to let me park there. Um, I would go to class till one or two in the afternoon, go home, go to bed, and then rinse, repeat, start all over again at 10 o'clock at night. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't do that is- in law school though. Right. Okay. I figured, out, I figured out the first semester in law school that that was not going to work if I was going to get grades. <laughs> right, right. I was going to say I did just law school and almost didn't survive. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even talking about the, the type of people you run across when you're a, when you're a, a sheriff's deputy and, and including when you're the, uh, the supervisor of the street crimes unit and on the SWAT team. So uh, it had to be a, a pretty exciting time. Those were uh, absolutely fantastic people that I worked with in uh, the Lachwood County Sheriff's Office back in the 1980s. We had a, a very progressive sheriff, Lou Hendry, um, great training uh, as early as far back as the 1980s. And I, I value that time and have great memories of it. Well, it's, uh, it's impressive and we are glad to have you on the show let me let me tell our listeners a little bit about you in the in the legal field uh, because you've had an impressive uh, career 
uh, as a lawyer as well. Uh, and I'll just say that I, I saw that you were named in 2007 as one of the top uh, 500 plaintiff's lawyers in America by Law Dragon. You're a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates. You're a member of the International Society of Barristers. You have uh, tried a number of cases successfully, including the one that we're here to, here to talk about today. And then you know, on top of that, you're heavily involved in charities, uh, including on the board for the Santa Fe College Fund. Uh, I think you were on the board for the Children's Home Society, uh, also actively involved in the American, American Heart Association. Uh, so um, it doesn't sound like you have enough to do, Mark. <laughs> My plate's pretty full these days, um, and, and trial work being the most prominent of that. And then there's family, and then trying to stay involved with charities. Uh, some of those that you've mentioned, I'm, I'm no longer on the board, but I'm still interacting with those people when they call to assist in raising money. I, I try to do the very best I can. It keeps me busy. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, um, well, the case that we're talking about today um, is a, a um, really uh, interesting case, you know, and I think it's something that, you know, people worry about is uh, when you're talking about uh, delivery or uh, um, delivery of food and, and how, you know, those drivers are trained and whether or not they're uh, acting negligently. Um, but the, your case involved a, a, a case against Domino's Pizza uh, and involved a collision with a, um, or not even a collision, actually he, he caused the uh, collision uh, with a Domino's uh, Pizza delivery driver. And the name of the case uh, was a or uh, is Yvonne Wiederhold as the personal representative for uh, the estate of Richard Wiederhold uh, versus Domino's Pizza LLC. And um, it was tried in May of 2018 down in Orange County, Florida. That's the uh, county of Orlando. Uh, and uh, resulted in a total verdict uh, of $8,977,788, so just shy of $9 million, uh, involving the death of, of Richard Wiederhold. Um, and, um, and I'm going to let you, Mark, talk a little bit more about, about Rich Wiederhold because he sounded like a pretty amazing guy as well. Uh, but the basic facts of the case were that, uh, that Rich uh, and his wife were driving um, – I think it was West on uh, Colonial is what I saw. Uh, and they were driving back towards Orlando. Uh, and, and it was at night on January 13th, I believe it was, of 2011. Uh, and as they were driving, a Domino's pizza driver uh, pulled out in front of them. Um, Rich was actually able to avoid uh, striking the vehicle, uh, but drove into the median on the left-hand side and then recovered back onto the road. And unfortunately, at that point, his uh, Toyota Tacoma uh, rolled over. Um, his wife, uh, Yvonne, who was in the vehicle, sounds like she was relatively uninjured, but um, uh, Richard had suffered a high um, uh, uh, cervical uh, break of his spine and um, was having trouble breathing at the scene and um, and was rendered a quadriplegic. Uh, and then about, I think about 15 months after the collision uh, uh, died from complications resulting uh, from his, uh, his quadriplegia. So, um, and so, I mean, just a tragic case. Um, and like I said, something that, you know, you worry about, you know, these, uh, especially more and more food delivery drivers that we have out there, what their training is, and then who's responsible when they make a mistake like happened in this case. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tragic story. Rich Wiederhold was a retired uh, firefighter chief and was larger than life in more ways than one. He was um, about 6'6", bordering on 6'7", and had spent about 30 years in first responder jobs in Orange County and Brevard County over on the east coast of Florida. Was retired and was enjoying life. He was a pilot known to small plane. He and Yvonne would uh, fly around the southeast and over the Bahamas and you know, just living a really good life in retirement. In fact, he had been that evening, he and Yvonne had been working on fixing up a house in Brevard County, just east of Orange County, east of Orlando, Florida, uh, for his parents. Um, his parents were getting rather elderly and he was going to move them down to Florida. And while they were returning to Orlando, that uh, incident occurred. And Rich, being a trained first responder who had actually taught EMS drivers collision avoidance over his decades in first responder and as a, an instructor uh, for paramedics and firefighters, was somehow able to avoid hit the her and Rich Zavon, and uh, for reasons that will probably never become really clear, maybe having something to do with his height, Rich uh, suffered that injury and was a quadriplegic. And he recognized that. Within a moment or so, he whispered to Yvonne, if, if the ambulance doesn't get here quickly, I'm going to suffocate, um, which caused her to panic. It was uh, yeah. just a horrible, horrible night for her. Yeah, and it, and it sounded like, um, at least from what I read in your opening, that um, you know he was able to actually give her some instructions not to move him, uh, not to touch him. That he was having trouble breathing, so that uh, that you know she would know what to do, and then relay that to the emergency workers that were uh, on their way. The um, the jury in our case heard the nine one one call, and the nine one one call that we secured from emergency operations in Orange County was was quite important because there were some statements that could be heard by the Domino's driver on that tape. But they also got to hear at the same time uh, Yvonne, and, and she was panicked. And Rich, uh, according to Yvonne's description, was just as cool as he could be, recognizing that he had more likely than not broken his neck um, and not moving him was, was incredibly important. Um, I, most of us would not have been able to do what Rich Wiederhold did that night. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, and I should say that, um, it, you know, it sounded like this case was disputed at just about every uh, uh, level. Uh, not only uh, Domino's claiming that um, that they had no responsibility because uh, this was a franchise uh, that was owned by a company called Fischler Enterprises of CF Inc. Uh, and then the driver was an employee of the franchise. And so they were claiming that basically that they were independent contractors. Part of what you had to prove in the case is that they were agents of Domino's and that you goes down to the uh, you know time, method and manner of control and how much control Domino's had. And, it should, and you were able to show they had a lot. Uh, but then they 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 basically uh, blamed Rich for what happened in the collision. Um based on the fact that uh, that the vehicle rolled over, they, they, I think they claimed he was speeding, didn't hit his brakes, um, you know, decided to drive into the median, maybe even changed lanes right before. It sounded like they were basically coming up with every reason they could for why this was, 
your client's fault and not taking responsibility for their driver who had pulled out in front of them. Yeah. And don't forget, Steve, also contesting whether they were engaged, whether Yvonne actually had a right, right. to recover. I mean, it seemed like seriously, <laughs> yeah. every little, I mean, not every little thing, but every, so many things for you to have to um, address for the jury. You, you look back and, and of course, I think looking back um, at the just incredible challenges facing Rich in, in the weeks and months after this happened and Yvonne being right by his side during the entire ordeal um, and, and looking at what was I thinking back then in terms of undertaking that case because they weren't married. <laughs> There's a Florida statute and the wrongful death statute in Florida that that indicates that survivors are ter- determined not at the time of the negligent act, but at the time of the decedent's death. So if the statute had said that they have to be married at the time of the crash, then Yvonne would not have had a claim. So we had that b- battle to fight. The trial judge appropriately read the statute as it was clearly written, told Domino's they were wrong about that. Then we had the liability fight. So we had competing experts. So we didn't put on an expert. Um, we had consulted with one, but we felt very confident based on what we had learned from the deposition of Domino's accident reconstruction expert that we would do very well in cross-examining him. He's a very accomplished accident uh, reconstructionist in Central Florida. And so the jury came back and, and told us that Rich had 0% accountability for the crash, which meant Domino's um, was fully responsible for uh, its driver's negligence. Half of the time in the courtroom during the week-long trial was fighting over whether they had a right of control. So Domino's had a corporate representative, a vice president, come down from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and describe in in no uncertain terms why they didn't actually control the day-to-day operations, but that's not the legal standard. The legal standard in Florida, as it is in many states, is whether Domino's had a right to control. And I can't think, and we can sit here and go back and forth, can't think of anything in the day-to-day operation of a franchise that Domino's did not have a rule for, um, did not have a regulation or a standard for. They had the right to enter the premises at any time and, and, and inspect the franchise. We're not saying there's anything wrong with that, but they had the right to do it. They had the right to go in and sit down at the franchise computer and check the books. They could access the computer at any time from Ann Arbor. They banned alcohol in the stores. If you were a pizza delivery driver, let's say you're a police officer and you want to deliver pizzas on the side, you cannot carry a weapon in that car. You can't have your friend ride along with you. There are all kinds of regulations I can just go on about for about five minutes that they controlled on a day-to-day operation. And it really came as no surprise to us that the jury in looking at this and listening to the vice president's explanation about why they really didn't control things on a day-to-day basis, they understood the instruction from the judge that it's just a right of control. And for everything they did on a day-to-day basis, Domino's has a rule, standard, or procedure for it. Uh, They clearly do have a right of control, and the jury agreed with us. Yeah, no, and it, it, I, I was going to say in both your opening and closing, I mean, you went through a detailed analysis, uh, you, you know, basically going through every aspect of the business and and how much control they had, even pointing out that they, I think, uh, could control what type of facial hair the uh, people who worked for the franchise had uh, could control, you know, whether or not they had tattoos or whether they or what types of tattoos they had. Uh, and so just, uh, I mean, right down to very minute detail where they controlled uh, uh, basically everything. 
And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Ab- yeah. Domino's is absolutely entitled to do all of those things. And in fact, from a business perspective, they probably should. But, but in doing so, they, they don't get to pretend um, that the franchise is an independent contractor um, in, in the sense of that phrase and what that means legally. You don't get to pretend that game. You know, in, in Florida, our appellate courts have said in these in this context, labels don't matter. And that was important in our case because Domino's continued to point to the franchise agreement that called the franchise an independent contractor. Well, if the label is important in that context, then every franchise is going to label their franchisee as an independent contractor and no amount of control will ever defeat that. And so um, in some of the Domino's cases I'm involved in now and other cases, that's an issue. Um, right. about whether they put independent contractor in the contract that just answers the question at the end of the day, and it should not. Right. I, so I was recently on the on the other side of this issue um, in, in terms of looking at paperwork and the actual, you know, control over time, manner, and method and arguing that somebody was an independent contractor and not an employee. Um, but one of the things, one of the facts, I can't remember if you brought it out in your, in your, I think it was your closing that I found really striking was that if the if the franchisees come up with an idea like an ad- advertising language or a slogan or something like that right. that they need to report that to Domino's and then Domino's owns it that's right um, Domino's has no right of control yet if uh, Mr. Fischler the owner of the franchise in our case came up with an idea that benefited Domino's he has to disclose that to Domino's, and then Domino's owns the idea. And so this was, you know, it's, this was the gamesmanship that the, the jury was watching and, and, and pointing these, these things out in the hypocrisy of taking the position that we don't control anything, and yet somebody comes up with this awesome idea. He can't keep it. He can't get paid for it. He's not entitled to any remuneration from Domino's for coming up with the idea. They take it, and they make the money off of it. So it, right. it, you never know for sure what's going to happen with the jury. But we thought we had put on really overwhelming evidence that uh, Domino's LLC had a right of control. And, and our jury agreed. And again, thank, thank goodness, the, the work that they put in, listening, um, going back and deliberating, uh, we all breathed a sigh of relief when we heard the verdict. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. 
They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I, I did want to ask you, you know, when you first uh, filed the case, you, you did name, in addition to Domino's, you named both, I think you named both the, um, well, maybe you just named the driver, which was a, a fellow named Jeffrey Kidd, which uh, I don't want to confuse our Georgia listeners or Georgia lawyers here because we have a, a well-known accident reconstructionist expert in, in Georgia named Jeff Kidd. Uh, not the same guy, I assume. Um, but uh you you had named him and then by the time the case went to trial, didn't have uh, him named as a defendant. And then I also noticed that when you were um, talking about their uh, accident reconstructionist, you had pointed out that he had uh, been retained, I think, in the four years before trial, maybe 30 times by Domino's to defend cases like this or help defend cases like this. And so I, I one thing I was wondering from the agency standpoint, had you seen in all of those cases or, or some of those cases that they were claiming that they, you know, uh, that, that the franchisees aren't agents. And, and I guess I'm wondering how have those cases turned out nationwide, if you know, or, um, well, we do have some, some information, uh, nationwide and, and these cases don't get tried very often. And, and, I, and I'll just say for, you know, lawyers that do this kind of work and they're, they're probably thinking, well, it, Mark, did you look at the um, potential products liability case involving the Tacoma? We did. We looked at it very hard. It, it became very clear early on. Florida is a state where um, a tortfeasor has to disclose insurance limits through their insurance company within 30 days after being requested. So we knew the insurance limits were available from the franchise, and it wasn't anywhere near enough to take care of Rich Wiederhold. His medical bills alone vastly exceeded um, their bodily injury coverage that they had with an insurance coverage. And by the time um, Rich, uh, we got to trial, Rich's medical bills he had passed were right at a little over $2 million. So we started looking everywhere for uh, an avenue that we could follow. And uh, a product case was one of them. That did not pan out. There was not a viable case there. And so we started looking really hard at franchise or liability. There is one reported case in, in Florida that dealt with a trial court uh, faced with the evidence that we were putting on in front of the jury where a trial court entered summary judgment against the plaintiff um, with that evidence on the issue of franchise or liability. And that got reversed by the Florida Appellate Court. So we, we felt confident that we could at least beat summary judgment on franchise or liability. But to, as far as we knew, um, this, this issue had not gone all the way through the appellate court, certainly not the issue of whether Yvonne could be treated as a survivor or not, right. and the fact that she and Rich were merely engaged at the time of the crash. Um, so this kind of funneled us to this issue of franchise or liability. And when we got into discovery and started looking at it, we began to believe that we had 
just overwhelming evidence that they did have a right of control. Other states, um, their Supreme Courts have addressed a right of control, and the appellate courts have kind of moved away from that a little bit without any, I would argue, without any support from their Supreme Court and said, well, it's actual day-to-day support, actual control. Um, where the uh, franchisor is going in on a day-to-day basis. That's difficult to find that. But but we had good law in Florida. We had great jury instructions, and that's what led us to you know pursuing this particular case against the um, against the franchisor. Poor Mr. Kidd, in these circumstances, a nice young man. We all know um, that he did not intend for this to happen. He just did not see an oncoming car. Have you ever... Um, tried a case where there's a violation of a right of way at an intersection and somebody says, oh yeah, I saw him, I pulled out anyway. No, people <laughs> say, I didn't see him. Why they didn't see him, we, we never really truly understand. It could be the windows are tinted or there's a, a blockage by looking over the right shoulder, but he didn't intend for this to happen. He had this small policy with progressive Progressive denied uh, coverage because he was working at the time and they had an exclusion in the policy that they would not cover him if he was on the job somewhere. So, you know, poor Mr. Kidd, he's kind of looking for um, somebody to take care of him. So we resolved the case with the franchise. Um, so Domino's would get a set off for the amount that the franchise had paid. And we went to trial on it. And, you know, we're uh, discussing putting on the damages part of this case, I still get um, emotional thinking about it because of what Yvonne Wiederhold went through and what she still goes through these days. You know, Rich has been dead a number of years now, and she's still traumatized by that night. She's still traumatized by um, waking up next to him uh, that morning and, and discovering that he wasn't breathing and that she had lost him. Um, just yeah. an incredible tragedy that nobody should have to go through. Right. I mean, it, it sounds like from, um, from the transcripts that Yvonne had basically, um, w- once Rich could come home, she had basically taken over his care 24 hours a day because she wasn't, she was seeing he wasn't getting the care he needed from, from other folks. And so she really kind of took that on by herself. It's a whole podcast on what it takes to take care of a high-level quadriplegic. So uh, Rich is on a a ventilator. Um, And Yvonne did try to use uh, home health care, but it was never good enough for for Rich. And and so at some point, she dedicated that she was going to undertake it herself. And so, yes, she had a little bit of help from family from time to time when she would need to go out to absolutely do something. But her days were filled with caring for Rich, uh, keeping rich upbeat. It was um, it was um, typical for Rich to ask her to help him just end it all. Or if Rich got a visitor mm-hmm. visiting uh, Rich in his home, uh, you know, Rich would would ask me. Um, there's a story behind this because Rich and I turned out to be distantly related. We kind of figured that out pretty early on in the case, and it was just heart wrenching. Um, to have Rich, you know, ask you that because um, he was suffering tremendously. Mm. Oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. Everybody um, should hope that, uh, God forbid, anything ever happened to them like what happened to Rich Wiederhold, that they have an Avant Wiederhold in their lives to be there by their side. Just an incredible, incredible woman. Um, that uh, sometimes the hardest part in putting on the damages 
case in, in, in this context is to find the words. Um, you know, of course, we had photographs of Rich and descriptions by uh, Yvonne and, and others, what she had to go through. We had a life care plan expert that had spent several days in the home. We lost the life care plan when, when Rich passed away, but we brought him as a fact witness anyway, just to describe what she did. And um, uh, that physiatrist, life care plan expert, um, told the jury that um, she's one of my heroes. Um, I, I just was blown away. This doctor said on the stand of the jury, yeah. by agree to what she was dedicated to her husband. Yeah, I mean, it, it, amazing, and you know, and that's one of those things that um, you know, and, and we say it every time that you know, a great plaintiff can make a, a good case even better. And it sounds like you had the greatest pla- uh, plaintiffs. Um, I, I did want to talk a little bit about the liability case here uh, because uh, so Mr. Kidd, what he you know pulls out in front of them causes this collision. There actually is no contact between the vehicles, but it causes. Uh, uh, Rich to lose control and then ultimately roll his vehicle over. Um, but after calling nine one one, well, two things. One is uh, when when Mr. Kidd called nine one one, he basically made it sound like from from the way I read it that uh, that they had pulled out in front of him, not the other way around. And then he uh, goes on to leave the scene. Um, now I, I understand he said that he thought you know, that, um, Yvonne Wiederhold said, you know, we're good or something like that. And, and then he was able to leave the scene, but, um, and then of course she said she never said anything like that, but that, and I understand you, you were, uh, very, um, uh, gracious to him in the, in the trial, um, that, you know, he, he made a mistake and, and, you know, and caused this tragedy, You're not a bad person, but, you know, when you have somebody who's leaving the scene and then seem seemingly changing the story so quickly, I mean, it, 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 it does suggest maybe he's not doing things the right way. I, you know, that's one of those, Steve, where you, you kind of have to be there because in, yeah. being around uh, Mr. Kidd and deposing him, he, he impressed me as a, a young man that, that his subconscious was battling with him because he did not want to believe that he had any responsibility for causing this horrible, horrible outcome. So I, I think it was merely um, uh, poor communication at the scene of the crash. You know, he pulls over and stops and he walks up and Yvonne is calling 911 and screaming for help. And, and people that live in the area are calling 911 as well. And when it becomes apparent, I think, to Yvonne in the stress of that moment that the the pizza delivery vehicle, that this is the pizza delivery guy, you know, she screams at him to back up, get away from her. And I think, I think just interpreting what probably happened that night was that Mr. Kidd took that to mean you can leave, you know, leave and go away. And to the trooper's credit, who had uh, moved um, to Pensacola before our trial, you know, he thought, well, let me just go to the closest domino store because mm-hmm. uh, all the stores have a geographic area in which they, they service and they're not supposed to go beyond those geographical areas. And he, he found the correct store on the first try. And when uh, he walked in and, and asked to speak to the manager, you know, they, they quickly told him that, yeah, we kind of know why you're here. And, and then he called and, and interviewed Mr. Kidd. You know, the, the liability part, the, the big battle was, um, it became pretty apparent that the accident reconstruction expert had made some assumptions 
about where Mr. Kidd's vehicle was in the median and how it was positioned in the median. And if you made those assumptions, um, then Rich was a lot farther down the road and would have a lot more time to react to a sudden emergency. Um, but then we asked him that if, if you moved the car up a couple of feet and moved it this way, well, then it became apparent that this was um, a sudden emergency, just as Yvonne Wiederhold described it on the stand. If you move the vehicle a little bit differently, it changes the time distance analysis by the expert. And when we do that, uh, we had several jurors that were nodding their head. I think they were already thinking the same thing before I got to it on, on cross-examination. Uh, I thought one of the things that was interesting that uh, I read in, in your opening, I think you're opening about the reconstructionist um, that Domino's had used, because I thought this was kind of only a, a product's liability thing where the defendants had tended to have their go-to experts that, that testified a lot. Um, but it sounds like Domino's had, uh, had their guy. Right. I, who, I, don't think- who, I should point out not only uh, defended Domino's, but also other pizza places like Pizza Hut. Yeah, I think um, so, Yvonne, that uh, that particular expert and, and the reference that Stephen made about 30 other times testifying, I think he was more prevalent in cases that Domino's defense firm was involved in than he was in particular Domino's cases. So he's been involved in a few Domino's cases, a few Pizza Hut cases, but he had testified in lots of other kinds of cases uh, with the law firm that defended Domino's in this case. Gotcha. I, yeah, I didn't know if he was trying to sell himself as the pizza driver expert or something <laughs> like that. No, no, he didn't do that. But I just, you know, for young lawyers listening, uh, I spend a lot of time on um, preparing for cross-examination of experts. You know, preparation is the key to our success. Picking the right jury. I don't care how good of a lawyer you are. If you have a horrible jury, you're just not going to win no matter what happens. Right. So it's preparation, preparation, preparation. And we had put in a lot of time preparing that cross-exam, and I thought it went very well. Um, so I, I, I was interested. I'm sorry, Steve. I know you have a question, but I'm going to ask anyway. I'm just going <laughs> to just run right over you. Go, go, go um, right in, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in... In your decision, since you you did speak with an expert, to to not um, to not call the expert, and it sounds like you you were very confident in, in your cross examination of, of their reconstructionist. But I'm wondering if anything else factored into that decision, if you if you focused the case or if it was um, something else. We did focus the case. We focused it uh, several times with with Harvey Moore in, in Tampa, and I liked how things came out. I was convinced that if I put my expert on the stand, he was going to have to acknowledge that if the car was positioned where the defendant's reconstruction expert said it was, then the time-distance analysis was accurate. What we had going for us was um, a a lot of – a lack of clarity from – Mr. Kidd on exactly where he was and what he could and could not see. There was a very strong inference that how he described his vehicle was angled to the travel lanes created a blind spot for him with his uh, right rear pillar. His windows were tinted. So there there was um, good evidence there to suggest why he was unable to see Rich Wiederhold's oncoming truck. There wasn't a lot of upside for me because I, I had already gotten the expert to acknowledge under oath 
that if the vehicle was oriented the way we suggested Mr. Kidd was describing it, the time-distance analysis was totally different and so much so in our favor. So without there being a lot of upside with putting my own expert on and being able to um, make really solid points on cross-examination of the defense expert, I didn't see the upside in bringing our guy. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, a great call. Um, I, I did want to talk a little bit more about your cross of him because one of the things the defense was pointing out uh, was that there were no skid marks uh, at the scene, and, and so they were claiming there was no evidence uh, that uh, Rich braked before um, before uh, you know avoiding the vehicle, and um, and then I think what the um, the defense expert had at least in his no first calculations had put uh, Rich at about 70 miles per hour and the speed limit on this road was 60 miles per hour and that he was about 550 feet away when um, Mr. Kidd's vehicle pulled out in front of him and so obviously arguing that he would have had plenty of time to deal with it. Um, and, and, I, and I thought in your both your opening and closings, you, not only did you point out the problems with his testimony, which I want you to talk about, but also um, it didn't jive with um, uh, what Yvonne had described, and she had, you know, a pretty good recollection of of what had happened in the um, in the collision. Yeah, Yvonne um, obviously recalled the events of that night very clearly. They they are burned in her memory for forever. So she described the traffic as not being particularly heavy. It wasn't a you know, um, you know six p.m. on a Thursday with lots of traffic. Uh, they were coming home. They were not in a hurry. They were driving with the flow of traffic. Uh, they were in the left lane. They'd been slowly passing a couple of cars on the right. Um, and she didn't recall her, their speed being excessive. Um, and, you know, she had described just all of a sudden um, a car pulling out in front of them, moving from left to right, and she screamed. Um, the The truck was equipped with ABS braking, and Rich had been trained. We brought one of the instructors from Brevard County, where Rich had worked and who had worked with Rich. Um, you know, first responders, police officers, they're trained not to lose control of their vehicle right. by locking up the brakes. And of course, ABS system assists in avoiding locking up the brakes. So this was a steering maneuver to avoid the collision. It's braking without locking up the brakes and steering. And by the accounts, that's exactly what Rich did. The problem was there was no avenue of escape to the right because of traffic in the right lane, so that left the grassy median. So this is a four-lane divided highway with median brakes. So he had the median to go into, and when he steered left and tried to steer back to the right, it created a, a yaw movement where the tires dug in, and then he flipped. Um, so he avoided hitting the young man and perhaps hurting him grievously, but um, unfortunately, Rich was not able to maintain control of his truck. Uh, I did have a, a curiosity, and you said you looked at the product liability angle, and our firm has tried some um, some what we call roof crush cases and, and rollover cases. Um, was the, the roof on his side crushed down, uh, or do you think it was more of a, a function of that he was sitting so close to the roof since he was six, 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 seven? Yeah, we think it's the latter because there wasn't any really significant crust damage at all. In fact, the defense um, accident reconstruction expert believed that Rich's vehicle had just rolled over one time. 
Um, so, so we didn't have an event where Rich's vehicle is in the air, comes down on the roof, and we have substantial crush damage. That was uh, the first thing we looked at when we held on to that vehicle for a long time. In fact, I think we do still have a vehicle <laughs> in the storage facility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and and, and uh, I know you said he was six seven. How, about how big uh, was he? How much did he weigh? Gosh, Rich was um, probably around um, two sixty, two sixty five, yeah. seventy thereabouts at the time of the crash. He obviously lost a lot of weight uh, thereafter because of his uh, serious injury. But you know, he was a big guy, um, a really big guy. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh, man. We are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers. And plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. Well, let's talk a little bit more. Um, it, 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 you know, one thing we didn't ask is, uh, and I know you said you had focused this case, um, did you get a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards about what they thought of the of the case or, or what they thought of the defense of the case? We did not speak with uh, any jurors, and which is a little unusual. We're not allowed to, you know, reach out to them and call them. Jurors are instructed that they can choose to talk or not talk about the case if they want to. But on a case like this, we usually would get a phone call from a juror saying, hey, I'd like to talk to you about the case. Can I talk to you about the case? Yes, of course, if you're, if you're okay doing that. Um, so they have to reach out to us, and, and nobody ever did. I, I'd love to know their, um, their take on things, but by some of the facial reactions and head nods at, at certain critical points in the trial, I think I have a good idea about what they thought about a lot of the evidence. 
Right, right. And did you see any of that in your focus groups as far as, uh, you know, because to me, you know, you know, we always talk about credibility in these trials and the credibility is so important. And when you have a defense where, you know, you, you're trying to basically sell the idea that you have no control over this franchise, which, you know, when you look at this, uh, I, I can't remember how many page book that you had there, but it sounded like it was about 90 pages worth of instructions that they had to follow. Uh, and then on top of the fact that they basically tried to blame uh, uh, Rich for uh, causing the collision when he's uh, uh, both was both a firefighter and a paramedic had been trained. I mean, just, you know, as far as clients go, you really couldn't pick uh, a a better client to have is the uh, driver of your vehicle. But did, did the focus groups talk about that or did you see any, any of that kind of stuff coming out of focus groups? When we, we did the focus groups, um, we did three, I believe with, with Harvey um, and their large group and Harvey does, you know, a wonderful job of putting people into groups and, and how he goes about accumulating, accumulating the information for you. But I, I'm really cautious about putting a lot of weight on the damages. Right did that. What I'm really interested in in the focus groups with Harvey or the ones that we do in-house, and we do a lot of them in-house, is I'm looking for uh, themes. I'm looking for questions that we as the lawyers have not thought about. Uh, because if they're thinking about it in the focus group, then there's a decent chance that somebody in the actual jury is going to think about it. I'm looking at you know those positions or arguments where you know we lose credibility or the defense loses credibility, so that we can tweak it at lunch and do it a little bit differently and see how it plays differently with those subsequent groups. As to the franchise or liability and the rights of control. Everybody in the focus group seemed to be of a similar mindset. How do you argue that they do not have a right of control? And a part of this is, is making it very clear because we've got that jury instruction in Florida. This isn't about actual control. This is not about somebody from showing up from Ann Arbor where Domino's is headquartered at the franchise every day to supervise people. This is about having the right to do it. And once you make sure that everybody's going to decide your case for you, knows that uh, that difference, then you can go about talking about all the rights that they have, all the things that we do. And Yvonne brought out perhaps the most persuasive, I thought, of all the the little bullet points that we put up in front of the jury, that being franchise owner comes up with an idea that doesn't belong to him or her, it belongs to Domino's. Right. I thought that was devastating for them. And, you know, they, they Domino's brings the, the vice president. They try their very best to convince a jury. Otherwise, the law is a little bit different in other states. But it's a tough job for him to do. And we thought he had really very little credibility in front of our jury of trying to convince them that they had no right to control this particular franchise. You have to wonder, too, how much it hurt them to be to sort of start out with to be contesting everything versus, I don't know, maybe, maybe they just couldn't give on it, on anything, but to, you know, it sort of seems like, okay, it's the franchise thing, but then it's also, you know, what happens in the wreck. And then it's also the whole issue of, of being, you know, engaged at the time of, of the accident, but not married until after the accident. It, it's, it's just sort of, maybe they didn't have a choice, but it seems like when, you'd sacrifice some credibility if you're not willing to concede anything. Well, um, it was, it was a question for them of what could they afford to concede with a, a number that would very likely be a large number. Um, if, 
if um, they don't get some traction on some of those issues. So on the issue of, of them not being married at the time of the crash, but being married at the time of Rich's death, that was not something they brought up and fought um, with the jury. They may have had some small reference to it, but it was in passing and, and nothing particularly important. That was a legal argument that they made. And I thought, you know, gosh, if, I, I hope that they do that. Right. right. Um, that, that uh, I don't know strategically that would be a good decision. And they, and they made the right decision in my humble uh, judgment on that, not making it a big issue in, in the case because she has, she had absolutely been steadfast uh, by his side during um, those almost two years that he survived that crash. Okay. Yeah. I saw, I saw it mentioned in your um, closing or, or opening about what was said, whether they were, really engaged or, or something like that. And I was kind of like, Ooh, why is this happening? (laughs) But okay. So they, they really didn't go there that much during the trial itself. No, no, they, they, they really didn't. I I think they toyed with the idea based on how things were were going in terms of witnesses that they were lining up. But, but somebody made the decision uh, in my opinion correctly, because I wanted them to do it. I think it would have helped our side, but they ultimately decided not to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you tried this case in Orange County, uh, which is Orlando, and I guess I'm wondering how jury selection went, what your jury looked like, and and, um, and what you were uh, looking for during jury selection. Um, Orlando is um, there's a lot of service industry in Orlando because of all the hotels, the theme parks, and so you know we had a trial that we thought would last not more than a week, including jury selection. Um, we had a, a, a really good trial judge uh, who tried a lot of cases. In fact, um, up until January 1st of this year, I'm not sure she had her own docket. I think she really enjoyed trying cases, and so she would do all the overflow cases. So I think she pretty much moved from trial to trial. Um, So she knew what she was doing, ran a tight courtroom. Um, We brought, I think we had 60 to 70 people in the Venari uh, to choose from. And, you know, in, in circumstances like that, uh, I, I don't know. There are cases where I would worry about demographics or mindset or those kinds of things. But but here, I thought it was such a compelling story. I thought Domino's was going to take a hit on credibility by fighting so uh, vigorously to try to convince someone, anyone, that they had no right of control. Um, that I, I really wasn't worried about it that much. So we, we tried this case twice <laughs> oh. tried this a few years ago. You guys saw the, the second trial and uh, the first trial came out uh, at um, 10 million with um, 90, 10, uh, 90% on Mr. Kidd and 10% on Rich. The second trial came out at 9 million with 0%. So it, it, it came out almost exactly the same in, in both trials. Wow. The first time we had a jury of all men, and there was just no way to avoid that. It wasn't because I was trying to get women off of the jury. Uh, I wasn't, um, and, and I, but neither was the defense. It just happened that way. But, you know, here is Yvonne Wiederholt, you know, engaged to Rich for a, a year, year and a half before this happens. And there are six guys that come up with a, a verdict that ends up being, starts as a personal injury claim, obviously, and then Rich passes away and the case transforms into a wrongful death claim. So, you know, we hadn't counted on losing Rich. You know, 
uh, people passing away from a pulmonary embolism like Rich did is not unusual uh, considering his circumstances. But when it transformed to a different case, the damage number, numbers went down, certainly on the economic side, because mm-hmm. we lost our yeah. life plan, right? So we had our past medical bills, but we didn't have the future medical, uh, the future plan anymore, which I think was 17 or $18 million. The second jury was a little bit more diverse uh, with probably more women than men, but interestingly coming out, the net verdict coming out almost exactly the same. So, um, you know, I, there are other cases where I would worry more about the, the demographics of a jury, but uh, in this one, less so. Uh, um, I thought in both circumstances, we had jurors that uh, had no problem whatsoever listening to the evidence and being impartial and deciding the, the issues on the merits. The um, so I, I didn't realize I, I I did see that this uh, incident happened in 2011 January of 2011 and you tried it in May of this year so I I was wondering about the gap there but I didn't realize you had tried it before um, what did that uh, get reversed and I guess I, the the bigger question I have is um, did the defense try the case any differently between the two trials. No, but Mark tried it differently because the reason it got reversed <laughs> was because I called what they were doing a charade, and the court found that that um, crossed the line. So if I inflamed the jury. Not use that word in closing. I thought they that absolutely was what they were doing. Um, so the second time we tried the case, there were uh, photographs, and we had put in maybe. 15 or 20 photographs of Rich, the, the room that they had uh, redone to accommodate the Hoyer lift, the shower, his hospital bed. She had a whole cabinet of medications on a rolling, um, it was a rolling cabinet. So uh, we tried the second time around, and uh, I'm just not going to have any appellate issues. So, you know, they're objecting to a couple of extra pictures. And these were pictures that had been admitted into evidence in the first trial. I said, fine, take them out. We took them out. And the, the the defense had an appellate lawyer there. She whispered to me as I'm doing that. She went, you're taking away my, my appellate points. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, she was very, uh, she was very good to work with. So yes, that, that it was not fun trying that case a second time, but you know, here we are. And, and after the second verdict coming out, it was exactly the same in that verdict. You know, it told us that we had, had had picked the right fight and had, you know, continued the fight. And Yvonne Wiederhold has been just a fantastic client who has, um, I, I wish all my clients are, are pretty close to Yvonne, but she's right up there at the top in terms of patience and cooperation and getting us what we need when we ask for Yeah. Gosh, that could not have been easy on her. I mean, it's never easy on any of our clients because if they're talking to us, then something bad happened. But having to go through one trial is hard enough. Having to go through two, that's just, that's just terrible. Whenever I talk to her and describe to her what we're doing, she goes, whatever you need, Mark, whatever you tell me we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. She has been just uh, incredible through this whole ordeal. Um, and it's, it's, it's still, this is a case that I will never, ever, ever forget. Oh, yeah. Well, so, and I, I guess I'm, you know, now I'm really interested in this first trial. So they, so you won in the first trial based on, uh, on, on this control issue showing that they were agents, that, that Mr. Kidd and, and Fischler's were agents of Domino's. And yet they still went 
whole haul going trying that defense again the second time? Domino's is um, when it comes to uh, paying something on behalf of a franchise whose employee is negligent, they uh, I think draw a line in the sand. Um, so I, I have not heard. Uh, and it may be out there. It's a big country with lots of lawyers and lots of courtrooms, but I've not heard of circumstances where they have agreed to pay out of their pocket without a jury telling them they have to do so. Hmm. Wow. How yeah, did I mean, you, Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Ahead. no, I was just going to say, you, you just, you, you know, that, I mean, we, I, I agree with you. I, I don't enjoy trying a case twice. We've had to do it a couple of times. Uh, but you know, every time we've done it, we try to, change up our strategy and, and, and learn from the first one. So it's just amazing to me that, that the defense would basically come in there and present the same, the same defense. Well, we, we weren't sure that um, they were going to try the case the exact same way the second time. We kind of wondered what would change in their strategy. There were a few things that, that we did differently to tweak. Um, but, you know, we worked on tightening up some things on the, the cross-examination of the um, defense expert because someone on that first jury believed that Rich had a li- at least a little bit of responsibility, and that's where the the 10% came from. So we tightened that up, and I think that worked uh, because the second time around, the jury determined that Mr. Kidd was 100% at fault and and the um, and Rich 0%. But you know, our case was you know we we didn't change much on our strong points. Um, you know, we were. It was, to some degree, it was almost uh, an exact replay of the first trial with some very, very minor modifications. And lo and behold, the net verdict comes out almost exactly the same. Oh, so what I was, I, what I was curious about, even though this is uh, kind of going back in time before either trial, um, how you approached how you approached in discovery getting the evidence that you needed in terms of the, the franchise, um, the control that Domino's had over its franchises. Like I'm wondering, you know, specific, obviously you got some good documents, but I'm wondering, you know, did you decide, did you start with the, um, I can't remember his name, the, the franchise, um, owner in this case, did you start with, um, start with folks, you know, 30 B sixes from Domino's. How did you approach that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like everyone to believe that it had everything to do with my skill and depositions and, and trial. But the reality is, is that you know one of the things that was notable, and you, you probably uh, recall reading it in the opening and the closing, was that you know we took the deposition of the the franchise owner while they were still a party to the lawsuit, and you know the the important question. Um, for a franchise owner is the degree to which um, the uh, franchisor has a right to do something. So that deposition consisted of a lot of questions about, you know, do they have the right to do A? Do they have the right to do B? Do they have the right to do C? Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think there were, there were uh, two things that the owner could think of that they didn't control, and that was their hours of operation and uh, the price that they charged some items. And I, I knew everything. I prepared almost a week for that deposition. I knew somewhere 
uh, that in the materials there was a rule about the hours of operation had to be a minimum of this. And so um, Ben Steinberg, uh, one of my partners who tried the case with me the first and second time, um, you know, he, he slipped me over the piece of paper and, and there it is. And so I got him to admit that they controlled that also. And so at the end of the day, I, I get him to confess that uh, Domino's controls virtually every aspect of what they do and their rules, procedures, and regulations. And he agreed with that. So, you know, here's the, the franchisee, uh, the owner, telling the jury that I can't think of but one thing that they don't control. And it's more than 90 pages, Steve. I mean, we, the documents that we have are, there are hundreds of pages of rules and regulations. It'll come as no surprise that we had to enter into a protective order to, to get those documents. But those were documents that our jury uh, saw, and we highlighted a bunch of them for them. And we had this testimony from the franchise operator that was pretty doggone important in my view of, of the jury's evaluation of the case. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about how you presented damages this, in this case and then how you um, uh, uh, pre presented it to the jury to ask them for a number or a range or a way to put a value on the case. I uh, So I started my career a little over 30 years ago and I had the, the absolute privilege to be mentored by my father. Um, he started our firm. Um, and so I got to try, you know, 25 or so cases with him as the first chair and me as the second chair. And then we kind of changed things as I got better. And then I became the first chair and he would be the second chair as um, he got older. Interestingly though, when, when he became second chair, I still carried his briefcase. That didn't <laughs> That's right. That never changes, right? <laughs> so, 
I, 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 um, I learned from him, but there were some things that, um, I guess because of my makeup, I just was convinced that, you know, I could do better. And, and, and one of the things I think we fall, um, we fall in a trap when we have such disputed liability here. We had to fight not only the liability fight about how the crash happened, but we also had to fight the fight about, um, the franchise or liability as a young lawyer. Um, you know, a long time ago in my career, I would have focused solely on that and would have forgotten that I have a live uh, damages case to present. So my view of things on, on that have, have changed uh, over the years, and, and I have to force myself to make sure that I put my damages hat on and not lose sight of that. That requires someone like me who is, you know, uh, there, we could all probably come up with a description about an American male. But an American male is typically not uh, emotional. They are typically not in touch with their, their feelings or their emotions or how their words and acts affect the people around them. They're uh, loath to show emotion. Um, and and that, that was me. Um, so some things happened in my life that, that caused me to be aware that I was not emotionally in touch with myself. And, and if I'm not emotionally in touch with myself, how am I going to emotionally connect with a jury standing up there in a courtroom where all eyes are on me and I've got to connect with these people to try to uh, take them by the hand and walk them on a journey without violating the golden rule to understand what Yvonne Wiederhold went through. Um, and so I'm kind of a, an amalgam of, of my father. Um, you know, there are lawyers that have done this far better than me that I have watched. And you always have to be true to yourself and be yourself. But I've taken a little bit uh, from other lawyers and how they do things and have tried to adopt it to my style. And, um, you know, being able to stand up in front of a jury in the first minute or so of, of Vore Dyer and say, hey, um, nobody wants to speak in public. Somebody once told me that the only thing that we are more fearful of than death is speaking in public. And I want you to know that right now I'm scared to death. Uh, but I'm up here speaking to you, and um, we're going to chat for a little while, kind of pretend like we're in your living room. Don't even want anybody to be nervous. That's hard to do for an American male. Mm. You know, it's hard to convey emotion and be um, vulnerable to a bunch of people sitting there in front of you that are going to be potential jurors and other people in the courtroom. So um, that's been a big part of me, particularly in the last 10 years, of how I talk about damage. And uh, I think it, it, it has reflected in some of the verdicts that uh, I and my team have gotten. And, and, and by the way, you know, we're, we're talking about what Mark thinks about A, B, and C. There are so many people behind the scenes that make it oh, yeah. what I'm doing. I mean, um, you know, Rita Phillips was the paralegal on that case. Ben Steinberg's a lawyer in our office that, that did a phenomenal job with all the paper and you know, the, the second trial, I had the, the pleasure of having my daughter, a new lawyer, join Ben and I at that trial. Um, you know, just my law partners that try cases with me, um, you know, I got this verdict, I got that. No, it wasn't just me. It was a team of people. And, you know, roundtabling damages and talking about how to how to present that to a jury is, is something that y you have to be mindful of and you can't forget 
because that is a tremendous part of your case. And it, it really just, once I finished in our trial, our trials, the franchisor argument and, and the liability accident, you know, just stand there and look at them for, uh, you know, a good 15, 20 seconds because I'm making the transition to talk about um, Yvonne Wiederholt and what she did and what she went through. And, you know, franchisor liability and, and the crash, that's behind us now. Now we're just yeah. going to talk about Yvonne. That's, that's kind of a hard thing to do unless you spend a lot of time preparing and focusing on that. But, um, you know, if, if you if you're mindful of it, um, standing up there, you can connect with those people. And when you connect with them, the verdict will reflect it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, Mark, this has been, uh, just a great conversation and, uh, and thank you so much for, uh, for telling us about the case of, uh, Wiederhold versus Domino's pizza, which resulted in a just shy of uh, $9 million, uh, $9 million verdict, uh, related to the, the death of Rich Wiederhold. Um, but, um, is there anything else uh, that we haven't talked about, uh, Mark, that you want to make sure our listeners know about? It's um, there's a whole but a lot more to that story. There always is, you know. Right. Stories like this, you could uh, sit and talk for a couple hours, and how Rich Wiederhold and I discovered that we were related early on in the representation. Just all the little details in the case. Um, but it's um, all of us have cases that we'll never forget, and this is certainly in my pile of cases that I will never forget. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, uh, I'd, I'd like to say I, I don't forget any of my cases, although I, that wouldn't be totally true. But um, but you know, when you try them and you spend so much time with them, uh, where you're living and breathing those cases for you know sometimes months on end, uh, you you it it'll never get erased from your mind, and especially uh, clients that make a, an impact on your life, which uh, many of mine have, and I know uh, obviously uh, Yvonne and Rich did on your life. Very much so. Very much so. Well, thank you so much. I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Mark Avra of Avra and Smith in Gainesville, Florida. And if you want to look up Mark, you can look him up at avra.com. That's A-V-E-R-A.com. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you, Mark. My pleasure. It's a pleasure meeting you, Steve, and you as well, Sean. I hope you guys have a great day and great job on the podcast. I enjoy listening. I'm not going to miss episodes. Keep doing it. Oh, thanks. We really appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. 
Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.